if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. And David, we're practicing our physical distancing. We are very far apart as we're doing this podcast. Different cities. I think that's far enough away. Not by choice, of course, but by necessity as everyone is going through this COVID-19 issue right around the world everyone has had to get used to some new normal as we've had to practice physical distancing quarantines all these different things trying to beat this thing and get life back to normal one thing we can still do is talk over the phone which means we can do a history podcast david you ready to go i suppose we could do a podcast neil all right then here's the question oh brother when art thou Neil, it's 1872, and an epidemic is ripping its way across North America, affecting city after city. Businesses shut down, commercial life grinds to a halt, the streetcar systems all over North America, one after the other, are shut down. In Boston, the fire department is so badly affected that the Great Boston Fire of 1872 becomes a great fire rather than an ordinary small one. And the U.S. Army out on the frontier in two separate campaigns reports that their forces are being significantly affected by the spread of the disease. There's just one curious fact about this epidemic that I want you to focus on first. And that is that no human was directly killed by this disease. Well, right up until that part, David, this was sounding like a familiar story. Problems right across the continent, all sorts of services and businesses shutting down. It's like what we're going through today, but today we do have a scary number of deaths. How could a disease that hadn't killed anyone shut down North America like that, David? That's, I guess, what we have to get to the bottom of here. That's the question, and the answer is quite interesting. Because it wasn't a human epidemic. It was, if you use the language of the time, an epizootic, a disease affecting animals and it was influenza I should start there a very familiar disease to us of course and the first outbreaks possibly associated with this epidemic although there is some difficulty in making that assessment since the medical services of 1872 were not up to modern reporting standards, but the first outbreaks reported were amongst birds, mostly poultry. But then it jumped the species barrier, but not 
to humans. Instead, it was equine influenza that would grind North America to a halt. All right, David, that sounds familiar to other influenzas that we've seen recently, starting in birds, jumping species, but jumping to horses. And I suppose that makes sense when you say it that in 1872, things would have been a lot more reliant on horses. Right. That's why I mentioned streetcars specifically in the opening to this episode. The streetcar services in 1872 in virtually every city in North America were not steam-powered, although steam-powered railways did exist, of course. But within cities, it was virtually all horse-drawn streetcars as the standard mode of public transportation. But, of course, all of these systems had to shut down once the equine influenza epidemic was tearing through their cities, which turned out to have an interesting side effect because when researchers in the early days of epidemiology were looking at this epidemic, and I should tell you that the first public meeting of the American Public Health Association was actually held in 1873 and had no fewer than two conference papers discussing this disease and the lessons that could be learned from it. And those researchers were able to track the spread of the disease without reliable public government statistics by reading the newspapers of the major cities in North America and South America and determining when the streetcar network was shut down, which was a reliable signal that the disease was present in significant numbers in the horses of that city. That's interesting, David. What a clever way of using some publicly available data to track this disease, even though it's not directly related to the disease. Well, it is, but it's not about the disease, but it's about the streetcars, but it tells them when the horses were no longer available to pull the streetcars. What other effects did this have on North America, David, things that we might not think about today. You mentioned fire services not working without horses. Streetcars, of course, are something that we wouldn't think of today as being reliant on horses. What are other things that were coming to a halt that might surprise listeners in our technologically driven world? Well, the first one is virtually every small business operating at the time used horse-drawn wagons for deliveries bakeries, dairy farms, any kind of small shop, grocery shop, hardware store, they had to get items delivered in and sometimes items delivered to the homes of their customers. And in both cases, before the outbreak, that would be done by horse-drawn, you know, wagons or other appropriate carriages, carts, whatever. But with the outbreak of the disease, they had to get creative. Many of them kept operating, of course. You can't shut down every grocery store in America, no matter how dramatic the epidemic that you're facing is. But contemporary newspaper 
ports are full of descriptions of people pushing wheelbarrows full of whatever deliveries needed to be made, teams of people trying to haul horse-drawn or designed to be horse-drawn wagons because that was all they had to make large deliveries and the horses simply weren't available. I mentioned fire services already, but in the Great Boston Fire, the fire teams were trying to haul their supposed-to-be horse-drawn fire engines, and without horses, the firefighters of Boston heroically attempted to haul those to the scene themselves. Tragically, they were so slowed down that the fire quickly raged out of control, but this inspired many other fire services to follow suit in practicing and training. And another one I mentioned in the opening, the U.S. Cavalry was involved in two separate campaigns of the wars against the native tribes out west, and both both campaigns were affected by the fact that the U.S. cavalry were no longer cavalry once they didn't have horses. So David, everyone who likes those hunky firefighter calendars can thank this epidemic and it forcing the firefighters to get in shape so that they could pull their own wagons? I mean... It forced a lot of changes, and yes, for firefighters, one of those was physical fitness standards, which certainly existed before that point, but a consideration of how do you operate when you don't have horses, which to modern years sounds weird. We operate without horses all the time, but if your system is set up for horse-drawn vehicles, it's actually a major challenge how do you change and react and adapt when you're facing a crisis situation and there are dead horses everywhere instead of living horses that will help you move your equipment? So that's how the firefighters adapted, David. You mentioned that there were some studies done as well with lessons learned. What were some of the lessons that we were able to take away from this horse influenza and put towards human epidemics? So there were two major studies done, one by Dr. James Law and one by Adoniram Judson, and they discovered a number of interesting things. So the first and biggest one is that in 1872, the germ theory of disease was becoming well accepted, but the older theories of atmospheric influence on human health were very much still alive. So the first major lesson learned was that epidemics clearly are capable of transferring over through varying climactic conditions. I've read Adoniram Judson's report, actually, and he spends a lot of time discussing how the disease went to cities at high altitudes, cities at low altitudes near sea level, cities with high average temperatures, cities that were very cold that actually started in Toronto and spread across Canada at least as easily as it did across the United States, with an exception I'll get to in a moment but it also spread 
through Mexico all the way down to Nicaragua and even into Cuba. So clearly this was a disease that was spread by germs where it really didn't matter temperature or humidity or atmospheric pressure or anything like that, which were all very much live theories of disease in 1872, quaint as that may sound to us. So this helped push along a modern understanding of how disease spreads. What else could we learn from it, David? The next one is also a major lesson from disease, how disease is spread. By mapping the spread of the disease, as I've mentioned, using newspaper reports of when streetcar service was suspended in varying cities, Dr. James Law was able to demonstrate that the disease spread more quickly along major railroad corridors, which allowed for very rapid transit of people and horses, and much more slowly in areas which didn't have railroads and therefore didn't have a much faster means of transmitting potentially either horses carrying the infection or items carrying the infection that had been contaminated. And that helped to develop a number of modern ideas on quarantine, helped along by the case of Vancouver Island. I mentioned that there was one notable exception in Canada to the spread of the disease. That was Vancouver Island on the other side of Canada, of course, from Toronto. It had enough time to have a warning that the disease was spreading, so they implemented a horse quarantine of the island. No horses or mules were allowed on or off the island for the entirety of the year, and that largely prevented any outbreaks from occurring, whereas most Canadian cities were overrun before they could implement anything similar. And that was a major lesson for public health advocates of the time, which was simply that quarantines imposed thoroughly enough, fast enough, really could be effective and really could be a tool in the toolkit of medical services trying to manage an epidemic. Sounds like these lessons learned from this epidemic, David, are playing out still today as we talk about self-isolating and flattening the curve. These are the sort of things that doctors and scientists at the time were discovering when studying an epidemic that didn't affect humans but affected horses. Absolutely. In the mid-1800s, germ theory was new, and learning about disease in a modern scientific mold was really getting started. And what was, I don't want to say great, because clearly this was a tragedy, but what was good for epidemiologists in particular about this epidemic was that it could be studied in much more detail than the vast majority of human epidemics at the time because there was no worry about medical professionals getting sick. They didn't have the 
masks and personal protective equipment that modern medical professionals will use in a medical setting, but that didn't really matter because it was equine influenza. It really didn't affect humans. So that meant that individual cases could be studied in detail and it was of interest to the newspapers and the newspapers didn't have to shut down which meant that there was a continual flow of information from the press for later researchers to draw on so it was really a good case for learning lessons from for medical professionals at the time occurring at roughly the right time for these lessons to be new and exciting. Were there any other things learned, David? Well, there's another lesson. It's slightly less cheerful. It's a little disgusting, honestly. But the lesson learned was the public health effects of having dead horses in the streets. Because there were systems, obviously, existing in major cities in 1872 to deal with the corpses of horses that died in those cities because horses aren't immortal and they kept thousands of them in urban areas. But those systems were quickly overwhelmed as the disease spread. And in major cities like New York, there were not enough people to haul away all of the corpses of the horses that died in a timely fashion. And even though the equine influenza never made a jump to humans that we can conclusively prove that was lethal, nonetheless, there is a lot of public health problems with having a bunch of rotting horse corpses on the street, and that drove both public health lessons learned in terms of dealing with genuine environmental problems and establishing crisis committees to deal with things like this in a crisis, but also some public lessons learned not by the researchers as people started a push to try and reduce the use of horses in urban areas following this because, you know, the fact that it was unsanitary was really driven home in a dramatic way that it would not necessarily have reached the people otherwise. Well, David, a lot of lessons to be learned from something that didn't directly kill any humans. What a fascinating story and amazing to see the ties to this very day and what we're going through right now with the coronavirus. Yeah, it's a topical little bit of history that doesn't get studied very much. You don't hear about the great epizootic of 1872 every day, but I thought it was interesting, so I told you about it. And we've all learned a new word, epizootic. So if you enjoyed that, please make sure you go rate us, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would help us out. And you can find us, obrother.ca, at when art thou on all your favorite social media platforms. David, we always like to end with a quiz. Are you ready for a quiz? I think I'm ready for a quiz, Neil. 
quiz me. David, we just had April Fool's Day on April 1st, but of course this year there weren't very many April Fool's pranks as everyone was respectful of the situation going on with coronavirus. Very good to see that people toned back the pranks. So I thought we'd do an April Fool's quiz, but with no pranks involved, we will just stick to true April 1st facts. First question. On April 1st, 1891, what famous company started in Chicago, Illinois? 1891 in Chicago, Illinois. I don't know, but if I had to guess, I would guess IBM. It's a good guess. We're looking for Wrigley, a company that is well associated with Chicago. It started making baking powder and soap, and then they started to include gum with their baking soda, and of course, that's what we know them for today. That in Wrigley Field. All right, David. April 1st, 1924, what Air Force was formed? 1924, what Air Force was formed? I am completely unsure. I'll guess the Australian Air Force. Good guess, David. We were looking for a colonial Air Force, but we were looking for Canada. The Royal Canadian Air Force formed April 1st, 1924. On April 1st, 2002, what country was the first in the world to legalize euthanasia? First country in the world to legalize euthanasia. Huh. If I had to guess, I would guess the Netherlands. A very good guess, David. Absolutely correct. Usually the Netherlands is a good guess whenever you're looking at progressive things like that. First country in the world to legalize euthanasia on April 1st, which hopefully didn't cause too many confusions with April Fool's Day. (laughs) One would hope. All right, David. Ironically, on April 1st, 1873, what British steamer sank in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Nova Scotia? Sank in 1873. I'm trying to think of famous maritime disasters, but can't be the Titanic or the Lusitania. They're too late. Maybe the Birkenhead? Well, David, the key in there was, ironically, it was the RMS Atlantic that sank in the Atlantic Ocean after hitting the rocks off of Nova Scotia, killed 562 people, 390 survived the sinking. Last question for you, David. On April 1st, 1979, Iran's government became an Islamic Republic, replacing what previous type of government? Ah, that was the Shah's government, a monarchy, I believe. You're correct. And that wraps up our April Fool's quiz. All of those facts, 100% true. David, thanks for playing along. Always happy to, Neil. And thanks for listening.